The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. The dice determine all. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore, the last chapter begins with the companions at the Branna Myrioth, the Fire River. Although they've seen evidence of giants in the area, luckily they have had no encounters with the monsters. Following the river upstream, they eventually come to the Eye in the Fire, where they take a rest while Raydel scouts ahead. Both Umura and Gyrios reach level 5, and enjoy a number of exciting improvements to their character sheets, the most notable being Umura's new spell, Lightning Bolt. When Raydel returns, he shows them a way across the river to the Eye itself. There is a kind of hidden stepping stone pillar bridge under the surface of the water. They simply walk across it, and what might have been a major problem becomes a piece of cake. The eye itself is a strange place. This island in the river is furrowed with the gullies and hollow pockets. Inside one, they find the rune that marks the dwarven necropolis. When Harl touches it, he vanishes. The dwarven warrior reappears somewhere else, a strange smelling and dusty place made of sand-colored brick. One by one, his companions pop into existence beside him, and a dungeon crawl begins that sees the party following some footprints. First, to an unfortunate goblin who has been cut in half by a hidden blade trap, and then to a room with two iron statues. Since the footsteps they follow continue between and beyond the statues without interruption, it is a complete surprise to Harl when they animate and move to attack. Chapter 49, Part 1, Day 62, Late Afternoon, Party Status, Harl, 22 of 26 hit points, Gyrios, 26 of 33, Eridine, 11 of 14, Umura, 23 of 23, Grumblebelly, 11 of 11, Spells Available, Umura has memorized, Shield, Charm Person, Levitate, Knock, and Lightning Bolt. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds and Bless. Grumblebelly has memorized Detect Magic and Protection from Evil. Everyone backed up a step, unsure whether to flee or to stand and fight. The way these living statues moved was somehow wrong and terrifying. The overlapping layers of plate mail did not shift and pivot over each other like normal armor did. Each statue moved as one single piece, which of course it was, but the effect was disconcerting, difficult to parse. 
Of course, seeing a pair of thousand-pound iron dwarves wielding warhammers was frightening enough. Metal groaned and shrieked as the figures advanced heavily, projecting pure menace. The time to decide whether to face them or retreat was quickly running out. The companions face a pair of iron living statues. Most dwarven holds will have a pair of these in the throne room, although typically they are programmed, so to speak, not to attack dwarves. This pair does not seem to have been created with that specific prohibition. Iron statues have several special abilities, but the most dangerous one is their ability to absorb metals. Any non-magic weapon that hits them can become stuck. Since the party only has one magic weapon, this might well prove to be a major problem. When this encounter began, as a player, my first inclination was to have the party fan out in the room and begin their attack. But because Harl would know of the statue's metal-absorbing ability, he will instead yell to the others to retreat past the blade trap, back to the room where they entered. Go back! The rules say that living statues move quite slowly, which makes sense. So I will allow this without the need to roll initiative. I will make each character roll to get past that trapped pressure plate, however. I think that because they are frightened and have to hurry, they wouldn't be able to pass it automatically. I'll roll a d20 for each character as they leap over or slide past the triggering mechanism. On a one, they misstep and the trap will activate. In order, Gyrios, 11, Umora, a 16, Eridine, a 20, she leaps over it easily and with room to spare, Grumblebelly, a 17, Ah, he knew exactly where it was. Harl, an 11. Keep going! Called Harl as he stepped carefully over the bisected goblin's body. Mezagar willing, perhaps they will stop coming. Gyrios hoped aloud. No, I want them to come. Harl dragged the goblin corpse off the pressure plate, and there was the faintest movement in the brick beneath it as the trap reset. The statues came ever on. Now they were in the hall. Too big to walk side by side, they entered single file. I have an idea, shouted Umora. Harl, get out of the way. Not yet, sorceress, Harl replied. Harl, move, she yelled again, but the dwarf did not budge. He stood in front of the pressure plate, waiting as the ponderous sentinels mindlessly advanced. Come get me then called Harl in challenge. Let me test my axe on your iron. A few more steps. A few more. The iron statue in front raised its warhammer and lunged forward. From the slit in the wall, a razor-thin blade scythed out. It was so quick, the eye could barely register it until it collided with the Iron Hulk with an ear-piercing screech. Metal cut metal. The blade quivered. The Iron Dwarf jerked and tried to pivot, but the blade was stuck fast in its torso. This blade trap is extremely deadly. It is spring-loaded and whips out with incredible force. I'll need to determine the living statue's hit points before I can continue. Let's see. These are four hit-die monsters. The one struck by the blade has 19 hit points to start. I might as well roll for the other one too. It has 23 hit points. Now let's find the result of the trap. This trap will do 3d6 damage. 12 points, dropping the living statue to seven. 
Now we need to see if the blade trap will stick to the living statue due to its metal absorption ability. The rules say I need to make a save versus spells. I'll say that the blade trap saves as a first level fighter, so the saving throw will be a 16. The roll. A 5. The blade is not just stuck, it has become fused to the statue. I suppose there's a chance that this monster could rip the whole mechanism from the wall. It's extremely powerful, but I won't make that roll yet because, well, like you've already heard, Umura has a plan. Harl! Duck! Harl hit the floor as the air all around him seemed to flex. Suddenly, there was the sound like a giant's bullwhip accompanied by a blinding flash, and the smell of ozone filled the hallway. Umura has cast Lightning Bolt. With both of the living statues arranged one in front of the other in the hall, this really is the perfect place to use the spell. Living statues do not have any immunity to electricity, so they will each need to roll a save versus spells and get a 14 or better on the die. Even if they do make the save, they will still take half damage from Umura's spell. Here come the rolls. But wait, I suppose I should give the immobilized one a penalty. I'll rule that a minus two on the roll is fair. It's save. A 17 on the die, it does save. I think the living statue wrenches the blade trap right off its housing, and in doing so, sidesteps the worst of the lightning bolt. With seven hit points remaining, it might not matter. The statue behind it will make a normal save. A 10 does not make it, and this creature takes the full force of Umora's bolt. Damage for this spell is 5d6. Let's roll a whole heap of dice. How exciting. Okay, 18 points. The first living statue falls forward with a deafening gong. The trap blade sticking perpendicularly straight out of its side. The second one, now smoking and crackling with residual electricity, and down to five hit points, marches forward as if nothing had happened, plowing its twin aside as it comes. Entering combat. This may well be the shortest combat the show has ever had. This living statue has a very high armor class of two, but barely any life force remaining. One good hit will destroy it. Round one, initiative. The party, a one, the living statue, a two. The concussive force of Umora's spell has left everyone dazed, but the living statue is unfazed and pushes forward, raising its hammer while Harl picks himself off the ground. It needs a 13 to hit, and, oh, it gets two attacks, each one causing one to eight points of damage on a successful hit. Wow, these things are tough. The first roll, a five. The hammer comes straight down. Harl throws himself to the side as it crashes into the brick floor. Before he can counterattack, another blow comes his way. A 15 is a hit for just two points. The hammer merely clips him. It crashes into the wall with a tremendous boom, turning a huge chunk of masonry into powder. Now it's the party's turn. Harl hacks at it with his magical battle axe. After his bonuses, he needs a 13 to hit. Five. Harl's axe slams into the thing, but it does not penetrate the armor and glances off harmlessly to the side. Since they're in a hallway, only one other party member will be able to fight alongside Harl. Gyrios masters his terror and steps in with his flail. He needs a 15 to hit. A 10 is not good enough. Yeah. Round two. The party. A five. The living statue. 
A three. Harl makes his attack. A six is yet another miss. Harl needs to pull himself together. Gyrios also gets a try. Nat 20, that's more like it. The ball of his flail buries itself in the construct's great helm, crushing it. The blood-red light within fades and goes out. The thing teeters and then crashes forward, hitting the floor with a horrible, dull clang. Harl winces at the noise and looks up at Gyrios, who is struggling to pull his flail free of the statue's face. It's safe to say we have lost the element of surprise. Okay, this is the hardest part of any role-playing game. Who wants to be the dungeon master? I do! Me! Me! Everyone? We could aid a desperate town in their hunt for a savage beast. Or sail to a hidden isle full of talking turtles. I love turtles. Or tracking down a band of pirates to save your best friend. Five DMs, five great ideas. I guess we'll have to play them all. Set sail with us for a podcast adventure full of music, laughter, and friendship on Dice Populi. Listen to these stories and more at DicePopuli.com. Dramatis Personae Gyrios Gyrios has been caught in the swing of what could fairly be termed outrageous fortune. It hasn't all been good, or all bad, but it has all been extreme. When he fought the Hobgoblins, he suffered two brutal attacks in a row that brought him close to the edge of death. He gave it right back, returning a critical hit of his own, and here again facing this terrifying living statue, a being made of magic and iron he has emerged a hero. But his recent attempts to cast healing prayers have all but failed, three times in a row now. Gyrios has been struggling spiritually for the past few days. Although he does not believe in fate, he does tend to interpret events in his life as signs from Mazagar. But what might these incredible vacillations in his fortune indicate? Many weeks ago, in fact, it was on day three of this story, Eridine asked Gyrios how he had come into his faith. Perhaps you will remember this conversation. Then why do you pray only to Mazagar? That's the easiest of your questions so far, Aradin. Of all the gods, I pray to Mazagar because he's the only one to have spoken to me. He really did? Aradin was rapt. There was no hint of irony in her tone or expression. What did he say? Back to hard questions, I see. He spoke to me when I was but a boy. Five or six years younger than I'd guess you are. I have followed him ever since. As to what he said, well, that is something I will never share. It was for me alone. Well, that was all the way back in episode 8. And it's true that Gyrios doesn't intend to share that conversation with anyone. But that doesn't mean we can't know what they talked about. When Mesagar spoke to Gyrios, he was at the age between childhood and adulthood. He was 12 years old, and so when Mazagar spoke to him, he did so in the voice of a child of a similar age. Gyrios was in his final year with the Brotherhood of the Scroll in the monastery in the hills outside of Lenten in Camranth. He had already been there for four years, spending the bulk of his time diligently copying scrolls under the tutelage of Prior Imrel and, of course, praying. Brother Lem and the others were gone. They had graduated and become acolytes, moving away to other monasteries. It was on the solstice when it happened. Gyrios was lying on his pallet in the dormitory, his ink-stained fingers laced over his chest. He had taken to spending his midday breaks here because it was the only time when he could be alone with his thoughts, but not in prayer. 
The other novices who shared this room spent their breaks in recreation outside the monastery walls. When the voice came, it was so warm and gentle that Gyrios had not felt startled, nor had he felt afraid. Mazagar spoke to him for some time, and at the end made Gyrios an offer. He promised that if Gyrios would be his sword in the fight against Ophion and her creatures of the night, then he, Mazagar, would always be Gyrios's shield. He told him to think it over, and to only give his answer when he was ready. There was one more thing, and this is what has recently been troubling Gyrios. Mazagar told him that if he did agree to pledge himself to the fight against evil, that before his death, he would send Gyrios an angel. Gyrios knew that he had come close to dying in the night raid with the hobgoblins. He did not fear death. He had always remembered what Prior Imril had taught him, that death was not where we were, and we were not where death was, and so we never experienced it. But Gyrios remembered looking straight up to the sky as the hobgoblin laughed gleefully, and his blood ran freely from the wound in his back. No angel had descended from the sky. Nothing had happened, except, of course, that he did not die, and so maybe that was the answer he sought. Mazagar had sent no angel because he knew that Gyrios's time had not yet come. Chapter 49, Part 2, Day 62, Late Afternoon. Party Status, Harl, 20 of 26 hit points. Gyrios, 26 of 33. Eridine, 11 of 14. Umura, 23 of 23. Grumblebelly, 11 of 11. Spells available. Umura has memorized Shield, Charm Person, Levitate, and Knock. Gyrios has prayed for Cure Light Wounds and Bless. Grumblebelly has memorized Detect Magic and Protection from Evil. Grumblebelly, hurry up! What's taking him so long? Asked Harl, looking back to where the older dwarf was fussing with the toppled living statues down the hall. Just, uh, just a moment, came the reply. While they waited, Umura fished the Owl of Thresendia from her pocket. She did not want any more surprises. She uttered the command word, Altenach. But the figurine remained cool in her hand. Presently, Grumblebelly came waddling into the room. Incredible constructs. I could not help but stop to admire them for a moment. Your incredible construct tried to break my head open, said Harl. What do you have to say about that? Um, I'm afraid I cannot speak to that replied Grumblebelly, twirling the point of his silver beard in contemplation. Normally they would not be aggressive towards dwarves, it all depends on the commands they were given. Apparently Blacknail didn't want any visitors, dwarves or otherwise. Can we expect any other surprises? Harl was frowning deeply at the scrape on his breastplate left by the living statue's warhammer. Certainly we can, yes. But what is most confounding to me is that set of footprints. They look human to me. How did they bypass the Gexarn? Harl shrugged. What of the air in here? And the smell? Ah, well, now that is something I can explain. It's one of the oldest tricks of the Artificer. Think of the many places deep in a mountain where the air becomes too thin to breathe or outright poisonous. The earliest Artificers found a way, using magic, to make the air breathable. A kind of artificial atmosphere. 
It's not even air we're breathing right now. It's a combination of- That will suffice. We don't have time to talk or to admire the scenery. The answers we're looking for are ahead of us, not behind. Come on. The companions followed Harl beyond the arch where they had initially found the iron statues. In this hallway, the dust was thicker and the footsteps were clearer. At Harl's elbow trotted Grumblebelly. Then came Eridine, Umora, and Gyrios last. This stretch of hall was a good hundred feet long, and just like the other one, it had something out of place marking the center point. This time, it was not a goblin's corpse. The smell of smoke, and then the very specific smell of burnt hair preceded this mid-hall feature. Soon they came to a blackened section of the wall. It was as if something had exploded here recently. They approached this new mystery with caution, but it quickly became clear that there was nothing else to see. Just lines of soot on the wall from whatever had caused the blast. There was no other debris. I need to make a quick pair of perception checks for Grumblebelly and Umora. Grumblebelly almost missed it. A tiny graven rune in the floor, right in the middle of one of the footsteps, caught his eye. Ah! A glyph of warding, he said, bending down to inspect it closely. Whoever has come before us has triggered a second trap. This rune means fire. They ran out of goblins to send ahead, I suppose, <laughs> said Harl. They must be hurt, but that might not be such a bad thing. I don't expect to find a friend at the end of this hall. Let's keep going, he continued. Eridine, be ready with an arrow. Ahead, Umura saw a pair of bronze double doors. They were wide open, and beyond was another room. As they drew nearer, the owl of Thrysendia suddenly became hot in her hand. Ouch. The charm grew hotter still. It was like holding an ember. Owl. The owl. Everyone, be careful. There's something bad ahead, warned Umura. She needn't have. Every one of them could feel a shared sense of dread. They passed the threshold and entered a large tablet-shaped room made of the now familiar sand-colored brick. It was flat on their side and rounded at the far end, perhaps 80 or 90 feet long, and about half that in width. The ceiling was considerably higher than it had been in the halls. The walls to the left and right were notched. Comb-like, they were slotted with spaces, into each of which was fitted a single sarcophagus. Alternating between these slots, along the wall proper, ran a kind of stone shelf piled with skulls and other bones, perhaps the servants and guards of the Blacknail family. This was the crypt. At the far end stood a solitary man. In the dim light, it was difficult to make out details. He seemed tall, but hunched over to one side as though wounded. In one hand, he held a weapon, a mace or a club. In the other was something curved and white. The footprints they had been following continued ahead of them, connecting the two sides by a straight, inevitable line in the thick dust. As if by an unspoken mutual accord, they drew slowly together, but then stopped with a distance of about 60 feet between them. Now they could see the man more clearly, and he them. Each side regarded the other for a few tense moments. The man was very pale. His bland face was framed by long, glossy black hair. He was indeed wounded. 
Harl could see where his left side had been scorched by the exploding glyph. Part of his chainmail burney had torn, and raw, exposed skin was visible beneath. If the man was in pain, he did not show it. In fact, he showed almost no expression at all, save, perhaps, curiosity. Harl cleared his throat. <clears throat> I don't know who you are, but you are outnumbered, and there's no way out of this place without getting past us. The stranger drew himself up to his full height, raising the hand that held the curved white object. Now they could clearly see what he held. A large, carved warhorn. Behind him was the empty pedestal that must have been the artifact's home for the past seven centuries. I suppose that you too have come for this, he drawled in a voice like cold iron. Eredin shivered involuntarily upon hearing it. Harl tried again. You cannot win. Give us the horn, or you will not leave this room alive. The dwarven chief raised his axe in threat and took another step forward. A barely perceptible smile tugged at one corner of the man's mouth. Cannot win? And who will stop me from winning? You? He regarded each of them in turn with disdain. I have already won. I'll give you one last chance, growled Harl. If you value your life, surrender the horn. We have no wish to fight, but we will put you down. Now the man's smile was real, and it was ghastly. I have already won, he repeated. There followed a tense moment of silence, but Harl never broke eye contact with the man. Eredin, kill him. Eredin raised her bow and fired. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and want to lend your support, there are a few ways you can do so. I have a new rules ultralight RPG called One Shot in the Dark that you can buy for the price of a cup of coffee on DriveThruRPG. Another way to support the show is to leave a rating or review on your podcatcher. I truly appreciate each and every one. I'd like to read one from iTunes. This one was posted by Matt Hales, or maybe Haley's. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Matt writes, I just finished binging all 37 episodes to date and absolutely loved every second. The tense play style, tight scripting, and great characterizations made the world and story come alive for me. Thanks, Matt. Hmm, all 37 episodes. Looks like I need to apologize to you for this belated thank you. But better late than never, and so I do thank you very much. Thanks also to my wonderful voice actors whose efforts make all the difference. Continuing in his role as the artificer, Grumblebelly, is James Schrall of the podcast Subclass Act, and returning to his role as the dark cleric Sav Maramon is Russ of YumDM.com. My appreciation to you both, James and Russ. For listeners who'd like to get in touch, contact me on Twitter at ManticoreTale or on Instagram at Tale of the Manticore Podcast. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. Lately, I'm collecting questions for a potential future mailbag episode. Write me if there's anything you want to know. The story will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. In a world headed for disaster, 
five strangers with mysterious pasts are thrown together by the winds of fate to try to stop the unseen forces that threaten to destroy their world. Join Creval, a dragonborn with no memory and no past, who is the first of the barbarians of the mountains to be seen in a thousand years. Cotter, a penniless paladin, running from something or someone in his past. No one, the only tiefling monk the kingdom has ever seen who has been expelled from his monastery for reasons he has not revealed. Adri, his monastic companion who hides some deep dark secret she cannot reveal. And Arlen, once a simple farmer, until some mysterious event manifested sorcerous powers in him. They must travel the length and breadth of the kingdom of Faro, searching for the disparate clues that will help them unravel the mystery of the failing of their land, while trying to hold together the unraveling threads of society's weave threatening to come apart at any moment. They will have to battle nature, plague, politics, and even the forces of the underworld as they attempt to discover and defeat whoever, or whatever, is attempting to poison their world and throw it into chaos. Relic of the Past is a novel-length story told via a clean, custom, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons game. Find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are found, and at poolmedia.podbean.com.